Well, he was a father, like many of you, or like your father. He loved his family, and he, he loved God, and he was absolutely trying to do his very best to be obedient, but things simply weren't going well. He had deep, real fears that his family was going to fall apart, and he had legitimate fears that they were going to lose their lives. I'm talking about Jacob in Genesis 42. I realize it's thousands of years ago in an entirely different culture, but family is family and people are people. And let's go together to God's word in Genesis 42 and let's look at the story of this man and what he was enduring. And then we'll ask God to make it clear into our hearts and our lives this morning why he brought us here to hear this word and what this word has to say to each of us. We'll begin with the first verse, and then we'll move over later into the chapter. But in the first verse of Genesis 42, there is a famine. Now look, when there's a famine in this part of the world and this time, it means death. There's no hope coming from anywhere. You don't have, once you eat all you've stored up, you'll die. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look to one another? Behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down there and buy some grain for us so that we may not die. You hear in him this absolute desperation. Perhaps his brother, the brothers are all in his, their dad's tent and they're looking at each other. Basically, he's saying, look, the answer's not in this place, but I have heard. Don't know that it's true. It could be true. It's a risky journey. We may not make it, they may not give us any grain, but it's the absolutely only hope we have. There's grain down there in Egypt. Verse 3. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy Egypt, to buy grain in Egypt. Verse 4. But Jacob, he didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers for fear harm might come to him. He's the youngest. And it's almost as here, while he's got to send these sons to go get the grain or they're going to die, he knows they may not be well received in Egypt. They might be killed. They might be held captive. They might be turned into slaves. And he's holding back one of his sons. All of this time, no doubt, the promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac, his father and his grandfather, are, are real in Jacob's mind. I mean, Jacob's the one who wrestled with the angel all night and was given a new name. I mean, Jacob no doubt heard his grandfather speak many times about God. He no doubt heard his dad talk about the time he carried the wood up the mountain to become the sacrifice and God provided a ram at the last minute. But here, at this moment, when his family's about to starve to death, when death is imminent, those things seem to kind of pale in comparison to what's happening right now. I don't know about you, but I will tell you, that's the story of my life. I know that Jesus has saved me. I know he has a home in heaven for me. I know he is there for me all the time. I know what he has accomplished in my life. I know that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. But when life becomes difficult and challenging, 
I seem to forget all of that. So he sends the brothers, and they go, and we'll move over now to the 29th verse of the same chapter. They're coming back. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, Well, the man, the Lord of the land, that was their brother, but they didn't know it, he spoke roughly to us and took us for be, to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're 12 brothers of our father. One is no more. Well, actually he is, but one is no more. And the youngest, well, he's with our father in the land of Canaan. So when these brothers are arrested and accused of being spies... They sing like canaries. I mean, they, say, they, tell, they, tell the, they tell this ruler of the land everything. Hey, we're not spies. Uh, we, we were 12 brothers. One of them, well, that's another story, but he's no more. And the youngest, he's back there with our dad in Canaan. We're, we're just guys looking for food. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I'll know that you're not spies, but honest men. And I'll deliver your brother to you, and you can trade in the land. Well, they had no option. They had to do what he said. And so they left Simeon there, in their mind, as a hostage. And they have to return and get Benjamin to take him back. So as they emptied their sacks, verse 35, every man's bundle, there was money in his sack. And when their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. In other words, you know, Joseph had put the money back in the sack, but now it looks like they stole the grain. And here is the verse I want you to think about with me this morning. Here's the verse I want you to think about this week. Here's the verse I need to think about over and over and over in my life. Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, cries out in total desperation, in total pain, in total panic. You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. Everything, everything is against me. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, may we just really transport ourselves into this time and listen to this story and understand the pain of this father. And Father, may you open our ears to hear it in a new way and unclog our eyes and melt our hearts so we can see it and feel it in the way you want us to. Father, there's much here that you want to teach us this morning. So I ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Look, I know we're Baptists. I know this church. I, I've, I've, when you were meeting over in the, across the road, I, I preached on a Mother's Day. How many of you remember that? Yeah, I figured probably. It was real memorable. About 150 of you there that day, I think been around a long time it's a great church strong 
theologically sound Baptist church. I know the preachers you've had, both of them. Love them both. But we live in a culture where the prosperity gospel is just all around us, and it, it just seeps into us sometimes. This idea that if I'm faithful and I'm obedient and I'm trying, then why in the world do all these bad things happen to me? Where is God in all this? Isn't there supposed to be some sort of a agreement that if I turn to Christ and I follow him and I try to do what's right and I stay involved in church and I give my tithes and my offerings and I work, then what in the world happens when all around me seems to fall apart? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And again, living in this culture in North America where we have consumerism and a prosperity gospel, this false gospel that says God just doesn't ever want anything bad to happen to you. He's going to put this bubble around you. He's going to protect you. If you just have enough faith, you'll never be sick. If you just have enough faith, you'll never be poor. If you just have enough faith, it's not what the scripture says. It's not, this is Jacob. And if you could put yourself in his place, listen to me. Everything he's experiencing is real. He's not making any of this up. From where Jacob is seated, from where Jacob is seated, there is literally almost no way out. First, there was almost no way out because there was no food. And he takes the risk of sending his sons to Egypt. And the worst thing he could imagine happened. One of them got detained as a hostage. And if they don't bring Benjamin back, that one's going to be killed. And they won't get any grain, and they're all going to die anyway. And if he sends Benjamin back, well, now he's got to explain how all this money ended up in their sacks. They're probably all going to die. And it all just comes crashing in on him. Listen to me, saint. If you've ever had that moment, that day, when it all comes crashing in on you, you're in good company. It did to Jacob. You pray and you pray and you have people pray and you get everyone to pray and the MRI comes back and it's not what you want. You pray and you pray and you get people to pray and your wayward child doesn't return. You pray and you pray and you get people to pray and your financial situation gets worse and you do lose your job. Then we wonder, well, is everything against me? Where is God in all of this? And that's exactly where Jacob is. Let me tell you what Jacob has done, and let me tell you what, what I do on a regular basis. I focus on the pain. I focus on the problem. And when I focus on the pain and I focus on the problem, there are a couple of things that I do and that we see Jacob do and that probably you do. First is we lash out at people we love. <laughs> He lashes out at his sons. There's nothing they could have done about it. They didn't put the money back in the grain sacks. It was just there. They don't even know how it got there. They were just doing what their dad told them to do. But he lashes out at them. He's angry. He's frustrated. Dads, how many times out of frustration have you lashed out at your children or your spouse and felt terrible afterward? Because you're living in that kind of pain and angst. How many times have you lashed out at your spouse, at your parents, at co-workers, at church members, because you're living in pain and you're focused on the pain. The second thing we see, not only was he lashing out, but he was really over-exaggerating. Every, anytime you use that kind of language, everything's against me. In other words, he is completely 
I mean, the idea that God called his grandfather Abraham out of the land of Ur, the idea that God, uh, again, with his own dad, when he carried that wood up that mountain, and at the last moment, God provided a ram in the thicket, the idea that God gave Abraham this son late, late, late in his life and promised him he would be the father of a great nation, all of that stuff, yes, I know that cognitively, but that doesn't help me right now because my family is about to die. And those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ and have been regenerate and are part of his family and involved in a church, there are times that come when it seems like everything's against us and we tend to forget and put aside how much is for us in the midst of all of that. And whenever I use those kinds of phrases, and I've used them, church, everything's against me. It's all going away. I'm so frustrated. I'm ready to quit. I'm ready to give up. The longer I live, the more people I know who get to that situation in life where they're ready to just give it all up and quit. I've had some very dear friends that have taken their own lives. And in a room this size, there are people who have had friends and relatives who've done just that. I've had pastor friends who've taken their own lives. I'm not belittling how life can cave in on us. The great missionary Judson became so despondent and discouraged one time that he went behind his house and he dug his own grave and he sat by it. He didn't take his life, but he sat by his grave. And the great missionary Judson said, I know God is real, but I don't know that I could ever know him. If some of us in this room would be totally transparent, we would say we have had moments like that when we have felt so despondent and so discouraged that we wonder if we'll ever really be able to know him again. And I would be relatively confident to say that at this very moment in Jacob's life, he and Judson shared that in common. <laughs> Jacob probably knew God was still real, but at this point, in everything I'm looking at, I'm not sure I'm ever going to know him. I'm not sure he can ever be known. I'm not sure we can ever figure any of this out. Unfortunately, God broke through to Judson, and he returned to the joy of his salvation. And actually, at the point of his death, near his death, he recounted that as he approached death, he felt like a schoolboy on the last day of school, ready to bust out of the school building and run towards summer. Charles, I mean, uh, Charles Spurgeon was given the bouts of depression that would last for weeks on end. And he would often say he was terribly, terribly afflicted with gout, and especially in that time frame there was very little they could do with it it was very debilitating and he had this great church one of the greatest churches in the world and people would come for miles around to hear him preach and when he preached lives would be amazingly and miraculously transformed but there were weeks on end when he couldn't preach he couldn't even get to the church and and he was in terrible pain and Charles Spurgeon would say if I was a father and I could take away this kind of pain from my child I would do it so why doesn't God remove this kind of pain from me Martin Luther, who would preach sometimes 150 days a year, 
became so despondent and discouraged that no one was responding to his preaching. (laughs) If you're a pastor, you have exactly an idea what he's talking about. He would preach and preach and preach, and their lives were not changed. They would come and say, that was a wonderful sermon, and they would go back out and live exactly like they did before he preached. Finally, one Sunday, in a way that only Martin Luther could do, he kind of let them have it. And told them they weren't worthy of the gospel and he was done preaching. And for 15 months he didn't preach a single sermon. The prosperity gospel would have you believe you just don't have enough faith. But the reality of it is life is very, very hard. This side of heaven. And if we're not cautious and careful, we will focus only on the pain. And when we focus only on the pain, we lose complete perspective. Which is exactly what Jacob did. But it's hard not to focus on the pain. The adversary knows in our human fleshly condition, we, we, have, a, we have a bent to do that. That is our first reaction, is to panic, to feel scared, to focus on the pain, to feel like there's no hope, like everything's against us, exactly as Jacob felt that day. And again, can we just go back and say, listen, from Jacob's point of view everything Jacob said was true Simeon is no more listen to me he didn't know who the Lord of the land was he thought he was an Egyptian and as soon as the Lord of the land realizes that these ten boys have stolen all this money Simeon is dead there's no look there's, there's no appealing that to a higher court in Egypt Simeon's dead. And if they don't take Benjamin back and plead for mercy, they're all going to die. But he'll probably going to lose Benjamin too. And then he says this, listen, Joseph is no more. How, how, How did he know Joseph was no more? He had the physical proof. Remember the gorgeous coat? He could hold the coat. The coat that he loved, the coat that he gave to his beloved son, this beautiful coat, was in shreds, torn up by a wild beast. And not only that, it was drenched in his own son's blood. And not only that, he had the witnesses of ten brothers who said, we saw him killed by a wild beast. Jacob had the proof. Joseph is no more. Oh, listen, saints. You can look at your life and you can see all the tragedy and all the difficulty. And all of it is real from our perspective. Listen carefully. But it's not real from God's perspective. Listen to me. He said that. Simeon was no more. That couldn't be any more false. You know where Simeon was? Simeon was safely protected by the brother that loved him, the second most powerful man in the world. Nothing was going to happen to Simeon. How about Benjamin? He's not going to lose Benjamin. As a matter of fact, in very short order, Benjamin and all the brothers and the dad, they're all going to be together in a land where they're never going to be hungry. They're going to have everything they want. They're going to be happy together. It's going to be beyond anything he could imagine. Everything he's worried about now is going to be taken away. And how about Joseph? Joseph is no more. 
absolutely he had the proof but that was not true joseph had never been more alive he'd never been more powerful he was seated on the throne beside the king he was the one in charge of everything joseph was wealthy and powerful and deeply in love with his family from a human perspective everything that jacob said was true but from god's eternal perspective it wasn't over yet And there was another chapter to be written. And the final chapter is complete joy, complete happiness, complete peace. Oh, listen to me, church. Henry Blackaby has said this. When God doesn't answer your prayers, what you do next really shows what you believe about God. What happens When the MRI doesn't come back the way you want it. What happens when your wayward child doesn't return? What happens when you continue to lose your income and your job? What do you do at that point? We've all felt it. In fact, the Apostle Paul felt it. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he writes these words. I don't want you all to be unaware, brethren. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. He's not trying to hide this. I love this. Paul is being very transparent. We think of Paul as the one who was beaten five times with 39 lashes, shipwrecked, snake bitten, you know, and he just always ends on, lands on his feet. But here he's saying, look, I don't want you, it's not always like that. He says, listen, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of the difficulties and the trials we faced when we were in Asia, for we felt we were utterly under the sentence of death. Here, Jacob feels everything is against him, and from his standpoint, it is. Here, Paul believes that these, he is actually going to die. Have you ever felt so discouraged, so despondent, you didn't know if you could breathe again? Hopeless. We don't know what was facing Paul. It may have been famine. It may have been an enemy. It may have been the cold. But for some reason, he and his companions truly felt like they were going to die. I don't know about you. But in the age of prosperity preachers, I'm pretty glad that there are guys like Jacob and Paul who live like I do sometimes. But listen to what Paul says. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But this, and here it is. You wonder, where is all this going this morning? But this was so that we would no longer depend on ourselves but on God who raised Jesus from the dead listen to me church if God can raise Jesus from the dead you've got nothing to worry about the power of the resurrection is given to you if God can raise Jesus from the dead Paul says why am I worried about anything you follower of Jesus You made him your Lord and Savior. You're trusting him to take you to heaven. Alistair Begg recently said that when you get to heaven and they ask, why are you here? If you begin with the word I, that's probably not the right answer. (laughs) I did this. I did that. I joined the church. I prayed a prayer. In fact, Alistair Begg said that, can you imagine the thief on the cross when he gets to heaven And they say, why should we let you into heaven? He goes, I don't really know. What do you know about the justification by faith? I don't really know. 
Have you ever been to church? I don't really know. Have you ever done it? I don't. Well, why are you doing here? And then the thief says, well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's all because of what Jesus has accomplished in your heart and in your life that you're saved. Not anything you've done. And listen to me carefully. When you die, you're, you're a child of God. When you die, Jesus said, when he talked about the rich man and Lazarus, and he said, when Lazarus died, a righteous man, the angels came and carried him to the very presence of God. That's glorious. When you and I die, when your loved one die in Christ, they're not alone. They're carried by the angels to the very presence of God. Let me ask you a question, church. If that doesn't happen, what's your plan B? And when the trumpet sounds and the eastern sky opens and the dead in Christ rise first, if, you don't, if, 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 if Jesus doesn't raise you out of that grave, what's your plan B? Well, you don't have a plan B. Why? Because you know you couldn't do it. Because you know Jesus is going to do it. Well, listen, if Jesus can raise you from the dead, he can take care of your cancer. He can take care of your finances. He can take care of your family. And he may not heal you this side of heaven. He may not give you anything but poverty this side of heaven, but there will come a day when it's all going to be taken care of. There will come a day when you're going to go and see Joseph on the throne. There will come a day when you're going to look back as Jacob did and go, look, God was working all of this together for his good, for our good, for our joy, for his glory, and I was pleased to be a part of it. And if for God's glory he would have me live in poverty and, and, and illness until he comes again, then that's exactly what I want to do. Because once he comes again, this life of ours is a fog and a vapor. It's over in an instant. You get to be my age, I'm one flu season from heaven. It's almost gone. But listen, when we get to heaven, we're there for all eternity. It never ends. And in heaven, though, there's not a single believer in Christ in heaven who's going to have cancer. There's not a single believer in Christ in heaven who's going to have ALS. There's not a single believer in Christ in heaven who's going to have a broken relationship with people. There's not a single believer in Christ in heaven who's going to have one instance where Satan's going to bother us and tempt us and cause us. We were created to glorify God here on earth. It is so hard for us to do that in our sinful condition. Our hearts are so weighted down with greed and lust and anger and pride. When we get to heaven, all of that's gone. And for the first time, we'll be able to do that for which we were truly created. And that is glorify him. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. And the men he was talking to, 10 of them would be executed and one would be exiled. And he said, don't let it bother you. Because here's why. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the you he used is you individually. Mark, Adam, Jennifer. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Just for you. And I'm going to come again and receive you that where I am, there you will be also. Is it easy this side of heaven? No. But here's what I do know. Are you ready? His grace is sufficient. Corey Ten Boom, whose family was arrested for hiding Jews. She lost her mother, her sister, her dad. She almost lost her life. But she lived the rest of her life not bitter, not angry, but loving Jesus and loving even her captors. Corey Ten Boom said this, and I want you to think about this all week. Maybe I want you to think about this the rest of your life. No pit is so deep that God's grace is not deeper still. 
And if God in his sovereignty determined that your illness will not be cured this side of heaven, you can be absolutely confident he'll give you grace to endure it. When, when, when Corey Ten Boom was in the concentration camp and every day she didn't know if she would go into this line to be killed or this line to work, she began to think about death and she remembered asking her dad as a little girl, Daddy, what will death be like? And he said, Corey, when I give you your ticket, when we take the train to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? And she said, just before the conductor gets to my seat. Took a train the other day to St. Louis, and sure enough, you don't have to, you just get on the train, and the conductor comes later. If you don't have a ticket, you get off at Lee Summit. But nonetheless, if you got a ticket, you can go all the way. He, she said, when do, when, he said, when do I give you, just before the conductor gets to my seat, that's when you give me the ticket. And he said, Corey, that's the way it is with death. When you need the grace to endure it, God will give it to you. Oftentimes we worry about what's going to happen if this, what's going to happen if that. That's what, that's what Jacob was doing. What's going to happen now? He didn't need to worry about it. God had it all worked out. I want you to know, because God raised Jesus from the dead, because he loves you as his own child, because once, look, Paul said, I see through a glass dimly. Amen? I am so grateful. If you ever go to a church and a pastor says, I've got all the answers, go to a different church. Because Paul said, I see through a glass dimly. And I think he probably knows a lot. There's some things this side of heaven we don't know. When I was at Warnell Road Baptist Church, we had two young Haitian boys drown. I, had, I did their funerals, both of them at the same time. One of them, Gael, was a victim of the earthquake, and he'd just been in the United States for a few months, and he was at camp when he drowned. He came to know Jesus on Tuesday, and he drowned on Thursday. So as I was coming into the church that day, the news media was in the parking lot, and they asked me, why did this happen? These are two young men who loved, you know, loved their family and had great futures, and they were at a Christian camp, and they drowned. Why did God let this happen? And I said to them what I say to you. The Bible is very silent on the why, but it speaks volumes about the what now. <laughs> I don't know the why, but I know the what now. The what now is we love these families, we care for these families. The what now is both of these young boys knew Jesus. The what now is they're both doing now for all eternity that which they are created to do. The what now is that one day we're going to see them again. That's the what now. I don't know exactly the why, but one day I will know why. One day it will all make sense, but that day is not the day. So here's the deal, church. When you find yourself in a situation like Jacob, and you will, and you may be there now, and I'm not suggesting it's not real. You can hold the evidence. Here's the code of Joseph. He is dead. It looks for all the world like he's dead. When you have the funeral, I preached both my mom and my dad. And those, those bodies are dead. There's no doubt. That's not my dad. That's not my mom. But what I'm looking at is not reality. They are alive. And what, Joseph, what Jacob was looking at as he held that bloody coat was not reality. Joseph was alive. And because he lives... Because Jesus lives, we have all the hope in the world. I don't want you to lose sight of that. That's why we need a church, to walk aside along another, love one another, care for another, support one another, because life is hard while we're here on this earth. But one day, one glorious day. And lastly, don't waste your pain. Don't waste it. You got pain in your life? Use it, as Spurgeon said, as a platform to display the glory of God. What a better way to talk about how Jesus is enough than to tell your co-workers, yes, it's terminal and there's no cure for me, but I'm still content because Jesus is enough.
You tell your coworkers, yes, I've lost my job, and I'm not sure exactly we've had to leave our house, but you know what? Jesus is enough. And if I can get real personal to people my age, you know, it's hard getting old. That's a whole other sermon. And I'm living it. There'll come a time when your kids are going to, if Jesus doesn't come back and take you, there'll come a time when the kids are coming and take away your keys. It's just going to happen. I'm hitting the curb a lot more than I used to. They're making the roads a lot more narrower. I hit the other day, I said, what was that? It's a curb. When did they put that there? Someday your kids are going to come take away your keys. Someday, if you live long enough, they're going to come and say, Mom, Dad, you can't live alone anymore. Someday your hips and your knees are going to go out and you can't camp, you can't hunt, you can't fish. Let me tell you what. You really want to preach a sermon to your grandkids? Don't point your finger in their face. Y'all want to get to church? Tell your grandkids, you know, hon, yeah, I know Grandpa died. We were married 59 years, and I miss him a lot, but Jesus is enough. Yeah, I know I miss driving, having my independence, but I don't need my car in Jesus. Jesus is enough. Yeah, I miss living in my house with all the things surrounding me that I love, but I don't need those in Jesus. Jesus is enough. Don't waste your pain. Use it as an opportunity to let the world know you love him no matter what because you've got a home in heaven. <laughs> you've got an inheritance. This is how you do it. You ready? You get through these days and these hours with the hope of future glory. The scripture says Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. How did he endure the pain of the cross? With the hope set before him. That's how we endure it. And we need each other to encourage us in that hope. And the world needs to see Christians who have hope when they're going through the same pain that they're going through. But we handle it incredibly differently. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these saints. Lord, take this message that I've done my best to communicate and do what only you can do. Plant it in the hearts of those who desperately need to hear it. Bring hope, bring healing, bring joy, bring comfort so that they can witness and glorify you in the midst of even life's most difficult moments. Forgive us, Father, when we've wanted nothing but a life of ease rather than a life of obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.